Hey, everybody. Welcome to Conspiracy the Show. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. Joining me as co-host this week, ooh, my favorite co-host of all, no co-host. Olivia will be back next week. As for this week, I'm going it alone to wrap up our deep dive into the very complicated history and legacy of the classic conspiracy theory book, Behold a Pale Horse, and its author, Milton William Cooper. If you somehow find yourself listening to this episode, despite not having heard the last free episode of the show, go fix that and listen to part one first. This is part two. It is the natural order of things. For all you princes and princesses who subscribe to bonus episodes, you can go even further back to the bonus episode before our last free episode. That was called Milton William Cooper Revisited. And in that episode, you'll get a lot more history and background on the man who wrote Behold a Pale Horse. And hey, if you've already listened to all of that, damn it, you are in the right place. Let's get to it. When we left off, we were talking about chapter nine of Behold a Pale Horse. That chapter is called Anatomy of an Alliance. And this is a really interesting chapter in large part because he is talking about things that are real and really concerning, like Project MK Naomi. That is a government project, OBS, given the name. The short version of Bill Cooper's claims about MK Naomi is that as part of this project, the U.S. government developed AIDS as a means of killing black people. And it's suggested in Mark Jacobson's Pale Horse Rider, which is a profile of Bill Cooper, that this part of Behold a Pale Horse especially resonated with black readers. And yeah, I bet it did. As has been mentioned so many times since COVID became a thing, it's really hard to fault black Americans for being skeptical of the government in relation to anything medical experimentation related, especially. And the government has no one to blame but themselves if people are still skeptical about MK Naomi, because almost nothing about it has been declassified or released or discussed in any significant way. But it was a real thing. It was a sort of successor to MKUltra. But whereas that CIA project dealt with mind control and hallucinogens and things of the like, MK Naomi was focused on biological weapons. Yay! This is the point in the book where it's easy to get caught up in a classic debunker trap, which is deciding that something like MK Naomi should be disregarded entirely because the person telling you about it got one detail wrong. In this case, I'm not all that convinced that MK Naomi directly resulted in AIDS being unleashed on black people as a biological weapon, and I don't think he makes a great case for it in the book. But that doesn't mean MK Naomi isn't worth talking about. It doesn't even mean that I find the claim unbelievable. I just don't think he proves it in this chapter of this book. 
But regardless of that one AIDS claim, for lack of a better term, MK Naomi was some fuck shit. It came about as a result of Operation Paperclip, which, just a reminder, no matter how people want to sugarcoat it, that was the United States directly collaborating with the Nazis after World War II. And it wasn't reform Nazis or reluctant Nazis or low-level Nazis or anything like that. We just embraced the Nazis after World War II. MKUltra and MK Naomi are both products of that collaboration. That's not conspiracy theory talk. That is just how history unfolded. And case in point, one of the main figures behind MKUltra, and eventually MK Naomi, was a guy named Kurt Blome. And who was he? Just the deputy health leader of the Third Reich. And the answer is yes, that does mean he oversaw human experiments for the Nazis. Specifically, he conducted human experiments involving biological weapons on concentration camp prisoners, including infecting them with the plague so as to test out plague vaccines. He experimented on prisoners at Dachau with lice to cause typhus epidemics. In 1943, he proposed dropping mosquitoes from planes to infect people with malaria. He also worked closely with Japan's Unit 731, who we did a bonus episode about back when we were covering the Jonestown book. And those dudes were getting up to some human centipede shit. And this fella was collaborating with him. So naturally, he was tried for war crimes after World War II, but he was acquitted. And it is widely believed that his acquittal happened as a result of U.S. intervention. Either way, all those years spent helping the Nazis figure out how to more effectively exterminate large populations of undesirables earned him a new life working for the United States government on a project that Bill Cooper suggests was meant to help identify ways to exterminate large populations of undesirables. So it's really not as huge of a leap as it seems. And again, the government has no one to blame but themselves if people draw that conclusion. Don't work with the Nazis if you don't want people thinking you're doing Nazi stuff. It's really that simple. And that actually brings up one of my problems with this chapter and this book in general. He kicks off this chapter swearing up and down that no one group is responsible for any of this. It's not the Jews. It's not the communists. How many people listening right now are like, oh no, Adam's going to say it's the Jews. No, I'm not. Because everything he's talking about in this chapter, and for most of this book, is just the post-World War II Nazi team-up American government. He'll call it the Illuminati or the Bilderberg Group or the secret government, but then at the end of the day, every allegation boils down to the CIA the NSA, all of these different departments that are just part of the regular-ass American government. And I think that's an important distinction because Nazis we hired based on their human experimentation prowess, continuing to do human experiments on our behalf once they got here, is a way more plausible scenario than blaming it on the Bilderberg group and the aliens that Eisenhower played golf with that one time. It's also a way more manageable enemy than, you know the entire world. And weirdly, another of Bill Cooper's wilder claims starts to sound a little less wild when you dig into MK Naomi just a little bit. It's a claim that came up on the 
bonus episode that focused more on the life of Bill Cooper than the book itself. That claim is his assertion that JFK was killed by his limo driver using a shellfish toxin pellet gun. I know, I know. I personally still like the accidental Secret Service agent shooting angle. And none of us are ever going to know for sure, especially since Trump and Biden both decided to keep the last few JFK files classified on national security grounds. Again, when two opposing administrations agree, buckle up, something bad is happening. Anyway, shellfish toxin. Sounds like the tinfoil hattest of all possible theories. But... Not really. Turns out the CIA was way, way, way into shellfish toxin to the point that they kept a whole bunch of it even after Nixon ordered our stockpiles of biological weapons to be destroyed in 1970. I'll put a couple links in the show notes about this. One of them is a document from the U.S. National Archives called Summary Report of CIA Investigation of M.K. Naomi. And yeah, I know, it's the CIA investigating the CIA, but it's also a pretty fascinating insight into how the CIA at least worked back then. Specifically, it's known to be a very compartmentalized place. People work on their projects and for the most part don't really know what everyone else is working on. And this report happened at a point in history when the CIA was under really intense public scrutiny on account of the church committee hearings, which are how we found out about MKUltra. Around that time, there was a call within the CIA, apparently, for employees with knowledge of projects that might make the agency seem like morally bankrupt Nazi collaborators who conduct medical experiments on the public to come forward and tell what they knew. And someone with knowledge of MK Naomi alerted internal investigators to the existence of this project. And in this report, those investigators note that MK Naomi was especially shrouded in secrecy. Only two or three officers were cleared for access to MK Naomi or Fort Detrick, which is the military base where this project happened. They couldn't even find the name of the project at first. And when they did, they still only found two files. But what they did find in those files, they clearly found very alarming. They were able to identify the program as having started in... 1947, and then the CIA really gets interested in it around 1952. And here's the thing, that doesn't not fit the timeline as far as the MK Naomi AIDS theory goes, when you take into account that the first human cases of AIDS start popping up in the late 1950s. Just saying. Now, I should point out here, though, that while Bill Cooper's concern about MK Naomi was that it produced AIDS as a weapon to kill black people. The concern in this memo seems to surround the suggestion that MK Naomi was, at least in part, an assassination program. It was definitely a biological weapons program. There is no doubt about that. It was meant to provide the CIA with a stockpile of biological weapons that they could use for CIA things. And in some cases... It was a biological weapons program that was meant to kill lots and lots of people. A CIA memo uncovered by the church committee mentioned at least three covert methods for attacking and poisoning crops 
and confirmed they had all been field tested. So that's cool. This was a long-running program. It started in the late 1940s. Remember that as I read this next quote. By the late 1960s, a stockpile of some 15 to 20 different biological weapons, agents, and toxins was maintained on a regular basis by SOD for possible agency use. The supply included such agents as food poisons, infectious viruses, lethal botulinum toxin, paralytic shellfish toxin, snake venom, microsporium gypsium, which produces severe skin disease, etc. And that's from the CIA's own report about MK Naomi. And SOD there means Special Operations Division, which is the name for the team of scientists and researchers who worked with, I don't know, the fucking Nazis at Fort Detrick. Also, did you hear it? Shellfish toxin. Just like Bill Cooper claims that the same people behind MK Naomi used to kill JFK. And it gets even weirder in that regard. Here's another quote from that report. With the presidential order requiring the destruction of army biological weapons and toxin stockpiles, the question was raised as to the disposition of agency materials, parentheses agency meaning CIA. Though specific accounting for each agent on the list is not on hand, the Department of Defense indicates that, with the likely exception of the shellfish toxin, all of these materials were in fact destroyed by SOD personnel. The shellfish toxin, along with 8 milligrams of cobra venom, was found by David Boston, currently chief of the chemistry branch in Vault B-10 in the basement of South Building, which houses OTS. And that brings us to another fascinating document that I'll link to in the show notes, which is a 1975 Time magazine article about the church committee hearings and specifically that mysterious batch of shellfish toxin that was found after all of our bioweapons were supposed to have been destroyed. The article talks about the revelation during the church committee testimony that initially the CIA came up with shellfish toxin as an alternative to the cyanide pill that military personnel would carry with them to take in the event they were captured. Turns out that is a slow, agonizing death that involves about 15 minutes of asphyxiation. Shellfish toxin, on the other hand, is said to cause a tingling sensation in the fingers and lips and then death by way of painless paralysis about 10 seconds later. And listen, I know it's a bioweapon, but that sounds pretty pleasant. I gotta be honest. But then, since Russia was reported to have killed some dissidents and enemies by way of poison darts, MK Naomi also worked on turning that shellfish toxin into a weapon that could be fired like ammunition. And during the church committee hearings... And again, this is according to Time Magazine, then-CIA Director William Colby showed Frank Church a pistol. And here's a quote from the article. Resembling a Colt 45 equipped with a fat telescopic sight, the gun fires a toxin-tipped dart almost silently and accurately up to 250 feet. Moreover, the dart is so tiny, the width of a human hair and a quarter of an inch long, as to be almost indetectable, and the poison leaves no trace in a victim's body. End quote. Frank Church called it a murder instrument that's about as efficient as you can get. There's also this sentence in that Time article. The agency has also developed two other dart-launching pistols, as well as a fountain pen that can fire deadly darts, 
and an automobile engine head bolt that releases a toxic substance when heated. End quote. There's also mention of a light bulb that emits a toxic substance when turned on and heated. All that said, I still have some concerns about Bill Cooper's shellfish toxin assassination claim in that the way he says the weapon would have been used on Kennedy and the way the weapon is described as working in the church committee testimony don't really match. Cooper says it was a pellet dipped in shellfish toxin and that that was done as a backup measure in case the impact from the pellet didn't kill him. In which case, you just shoot him then. If you're counting on the pellet to kill him, that kind of sounds like it's going to go in his head and lodge in his brain. In which case, just shoot him. Why dip it in shellfish toxin? And the shellfish toxin gun mentioned by William Colby in the church committee hearings, it's not a pellet that lodges in the brain. It's just a tiny little dart that works with a pin prick. So Cooper's right when he claims the government had figured out a means of assassination by way of shellfish toxin, apparently. I just don't buy his claim that it's how Kennedy was killed. Same thing with most of his thoughts on M.K. Naomi. Cooper's claim in Behold a Pale Horse, again, is that M.K. Naomi was carried out on orders from our real government, the Bilderberg Group, a.k.a. the Illuminati, and that it was done in the name of population control. He then asserts that everything from access to abortions to homosexuality, was created by the government to keep birth rates low, and when that failed, AIDS was invented to increase death rates. Confusingly, he says homosexuals were both encouraged to exist in the name of keeping birth rates low, but also targeted for extermination via AIDS on account of being undesirables. Makes perfect sense. Whatever the case, the big problem with his theory here is that it's been rendered completely pointless by history on account of a bunch of wild predictions he makes that never came true. Like how he says the plan is for lots of people to die between the time the book was published, which was around 1991, and the year 2000, and that if that doesn't happen, the human race is going to go extinct. Well, the global population back then was around 5 billion, and now it's around 7.7 .7 billion. And we're not doing great, but it does seem like we've got a few years left in us as a species. We at least made it past the year 2000. I mean, in the big scheme of things, we're barely past the year 2000. But in the big scheme of things, what's the year 2000? This planet's old as shit. Here's a quote from Behold a Pale Horse. Can you imagine what will happen if Los Angeles is hit with a 9.0 quake, New York City is destroyed by a terrorist planted atomic bomb. World War III breaks out in the Middle East. The banks and the stock markets collapse. Extraterrestrials land on the White House lawn. Food disappears from the markets. Some people disappear. And the Messiah presents himself to the world, all in a very short period of time. Can you imagine? The world power structure can and will, if necessary, make some or all of those things happen to bring about the new world order. End quote. We'll do it then. Like some very lesser versions of those things have happened. Like 9-11 was a big deal, but it certainly wasn't New York City being completely destroyed. There was no 9.0 earthquake in L.A. Someday, sure, but those two things haven't happened yet. They didn't happen in close proximity. And again, all of this was going to happen in response to reports that said, if we didn't take these steps by the year 2000, we're 
done. And he drives this chapter home, admonishing readers to straighten up and act right and quit having so many kids and like die more, I guess, because if we don't, the Illuminati will do it for us. And he also keeps reiterating how important it is for us to establish some colonies in space to keep humankind going. But he keeps referring to it as starseed. And God, that sounds gross. Stop it. I'm sure that's a technical science term that people use, but don't. Say something else. He then directs readers to a couple of examples of the kind of reports he's referring to. So you can, you know, do your own research. And if you're going to take this book on, it is kind of important to do your own research here. Because the first thing he mentions is the Hague-Kissinger depopulation policy. Which is interesting, because what searching for that mostly revealed to me is that Bill Cooper kind of stole this entire chapter from an article in the March 10th, 1981 issue of Executive Intelligence Review, which is a weekly magazine founded by conspiracy theory pioneer Lyndon LaRouche. It's still published to this day. I'll link to their website in the show notes solely because it hardcore supports my theory that right-wing websites all look like they were designed in 1996, because they are the only sites that function properly on shitty rural Wi-Fi, which is kept shitty solely for the purpose of making information a little harder to access in those areas. No proof. Wild speculation on my part. But God, it's fun. It's a fun thing to do. Anyway, the title of the article is exactly what Bill Cooper says you should search for. The Hague-Kissinger Depopulation Policy, and it is essentially reprinted, albeit with some slight rewording, in Behold a Pale Horse. Another document is called the Global 2000 Report to the President. These two are directly related. The Global 2000 Report to the President was a deeply flawed, but at the time, very highly alarming study commissioned by the Carter administration about what kind of calamities the world would face by the year 2000 if we didn't do something to get population growth under control in developing countries. In response to this report, Henry Kissinger authored National Security Study Memorandum 200, Implications of Worldwide Population Growth for U.S. Security and Overseas Interests. It very mercifully offers up the less unwieldy alternate title, The Kissinger Report, in parentheses. Now, let me state right up top, I do not dispute that Henry Kissinger is a straight-up war criminal, and that this country's policies in developing nations in general, but especially Latin America, directly led to the deaths of untold numbers of people, and especially if we're talking Central America, created problems this country is still dealing with to this day and still dealing with in the wrong way. But also, that's not the kind of stuff you just put in a report to the president. I think what you're seeing in both the LaRouche publication article and the reprinting of it in Behold a Pale Horse is something way more common and still unfortunately relevant today, which is the demonization of birth control and abortion. Yes, the Kissinger Report and the Global 2000 Report both talk about the dangers of population growth and population control as a necessity going forward. But in the case of 
the Global 2000 report, what it's really saying is that we're just going to have to figure out how to live with population growth, not that we need to start slaughtering Central Americans to stop population growth. And again, I'm definitely not saying that no one in the U.S. government ever advocated for the slaughter of Central Americans. Of course they did. They still do all the time, even if not in those exact words. But that's not what the Kissinger Report is about either. If you're wondering what kind of evil it discusses, here's a quote from a section that I admit doesn't have the least alarming title. It's called Functional Assistance Programs to Create Conditions for Fertility Decline. I know, I know, that sounds creepy. But here's a quote from that section. The desire for large families diminishes as income rises. Developed countries and the more developed areas in less developed countries have lower fertility than less developed areas. Similarly, family planning programs produce more acceptors and have a greater impact on fertility in developed areas than they do in less developed areas. Thus, investments in development are important in lowering fertility rates. End quote. And ooh, isn't that scary? Investments in development. I mean, Again, don't get me wrong, the United States government saying investments in development can very much be scary. It's just, in this case, not what Bill Cooper is making it out to be. Here's another quote. Assistance programs have less chance of success as long as the numbers to be fed, educated, and employed are increasing rapidly. Thus, to assist in achieving LDC, that means less developed countries, fertility reduction, not only should family planning be high up on the priority list for U.S. foreign assistance, but high priority in allocation of funds should be given to programs in other sectors that contribute in a cost-effective manner in reduction in population growth, end quote. And I mean, I guess you could interpret that to mean we need to murder Salvadorans if you wanted to, but it's clearly not what the Kissinger Report is getting at. The first of those programs in other sectors that they bring up is providing minimal levels of education, comma, especially for women. And again, fuck Henry Kissinger. I get it. He's as much of a problem on the world stage as anyone else. And the things this country and its military did under his watch and under his suggestion, horrible. But that doesn't mean this report is proof positive of an Illuminati plot to enslave the world and install a one-world government. It's not even sort of that. If anything, this reads like a very strong endorsement for American businesses to be allowed to set up shop in these countries. Like, at the end of the day, that's what's going to help them develop like, not really, but that's what we will say will help them develop. You just need enough Starbucks, and that will stave off a civil war. It's more that the reaction to this report is just more evidence that right-wingers hate abortion and birth control. As if we needed any more evidence of that, even by the point in history when this book came out. This section of Behold a Pale Horse and the article that inspired it are the reason why things like the global gag rule exist. That's a thing that was first put in place by the Reagan administration in 1984. It prevents foreign organizations receiving U.S. global health assistance from providing information, referrals, or services for legal abortion or advocating for access to abortion services in their country, even with their own money. And that is a quote from the Planned Parenthood website in an article about the global gag rule. I'll link to it. It's a law that exists solely along party lines. When a Republican is president, the global gag rule is in effect. 
Trump reinstated it and expanded it almost immediately upon taking office. Biden rescinded it upon taking office. That's always how it works. That's what this section of Behold a Pale Horse is about. It is anti-abortion propaganda and not much else. Go figure. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So as mentioned on the last episode, a whole lot of this book is just Bill Cooper reprinting various reports and documents and articles and transcripts of varying credibility that he feels support his assertion that the Bilderberg Group is out to get you. Like how chapter 10 is just an article written by a guy named Neil Knox that's all about how Gorbachev sees guns in Lithuania and asking what the difference is between that and some gun law in New Jersey called the Graves Act, which was apparently still being debated at the time, but wasn't law yet. And at the time, I would have said the difference is that Lithuania has a population of a couple million, where the United States is hundreds of millions, and we all have guns, every single one of us. So that operation probably wouldn't go as well here. Now, I'd say the difference is there are still a shit ton of guns in New Jersey and everywhere else in the United States, even if you get in extra trouble if your gun is a sawed-off shotgun in New Jersey. That's the kind of stuff the Graves Act does. The chapter ends with a note from Cooper about how obviously the Second Amendment is the only reason the New World Order hasn't happened yet. So chapter 9 was anti-abortion propaganda. Chapter 10 is an NRA commercial. For some reason, in the middle of all this is chapter 11, which is just a conversation between Bill Cooper and a guy named Randy, who agrees with Cooper's hunch that Nixon was actually deposed in a coup, as opposed to being forced to resign, to which I say, what's the fucking difference, dude? Who cares? Also, this isn't really a transcript of his conversation. It's his attempt to recreate the conversation, which happened a long time ago, based on his memory of said conversation, which is based on Randy's memory of the thing he's talking about, which happened even longer ago before that. It is a meaningless chapter. It should have been cut. It serves no purpose. But chapter 12... Now that's where everything comes together, which is appropriate because despite this book claiming to have 17 chapters or 18, depending on what copy you get, more on that later, chapter 12 is actually the last proper chapter of the book. The rest is more articles and documents and appendices that you can go read for yourself if you're interested, but it's chapter 12 that serves as the culmination of all of the information presented up to this point in the book chapter is called The Secret Government, and it's a reworked version of a research paper he first delivered at a UFO conference in Las Vegas in 1989. There are a few reasons to be skeptical of the theory Bill Cooper presents here. For one thing, as mentioned on the Milton William Cooper Revisited episode, and in the Pale Horse Rider book by Mark Jacobson, one of the tenets of Cooper's claim, the Majestic 12 theory, was called into serious question the day before he delivered this speech 
at that UFO conference. And it was called into question at the exact same UFO conference. It was there that a guy named William Moore, who co-authored a seminal book about the Roswell incident that will come up again in a little bit. William Moore, he's one of the originators of the MJ-12 theory, Majestic 12. He got up in front of a crowd of UFO enthusiasts and tearfully admitted that he collaborated with notorious government misinformation creep Richard Doty, who we talk about all the time on this podcast. He's the subject of the Mirage Men documentary. William Moore at this same UFO conference where Bill Cooper first delivered the secret government report to a crowd of onlookers, William Moore admitted at that conference that he and Richard Doty collaborated to make up this story in an effort to preemptively discredit a guy in New Mexico who built an antenna on the roof of his house that was capable of picking up things that he shouldn't be able to hear. And Bill Cooper was super angry at first, but then he immediately decided William Moore is a liar and delivered his secret government speech the next day anyway. The other reason to be skeptical comes in the form of this quote from Cooper himself in Behold a Pale Horse. Here goes. Most of this knowledge comes directly from, or is a result of, my own research into the top secret material that I saw and read between the years 1970 and 1973 as a member of the intelligence briefing team of the Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet. Since some of this information was derived from sources that I cannot divulge for obvious reasons, and from published sources that I cannot vouch for, this chapter must be termed a hypothesis. End quote. But if it puts your mind at ease, he does mention that his hypothesis is the only one that makes the world make sense. So, take comfort in that. And I will try to keep my rundown of this theory as brief as possible. But this really is the crux of Behold a Pale Horse. What he talks about in this chapter is him round and third, heading for home, tying it all together, just like they do in the movies. It starts with Roswell and at least 16 other incidents like it that happened between January 1947 and December 1952. Along with those 16 or so crashed alien vehicles, we also found 65 alien bodies and one live alien. And honestly, this is one of my first problems with this theory. Would we really be this thirsty for technology that crashed this much? Over New Mexico, no less? Like, I'm no authority, but I have spent some time in New Mexico... And while the police are certainly crazy, the weather is not. It's the desert, man. How rad can this technology really be if it can't stay afloat above New Mexico? It is the hot air balloon capital of the world. And it's that for a reason. It's because there's nothing up there. There is nothing up there but hot air balloons and UFOs. And we're this interested in the ones that crash all the time? Okay, whatever, whatever. This part of the story, lots of people know. An alleged UFO crash... Subsequent government cover-up. That's the Roswell story. Cooper's contribution to this story is the allegation that human body parts were found on some of the UFOs, which seems like a huge thing for all the other people who had claimed to have seen this wreckage or evidence of this wreckage up to this point to have overlooked. But let's keep going. A group of America's top scientists quickly convened to look into this matter, working under the name Project Sign, which evolved into Project Grudge, which formed an offshoot disinformation project called Blue Book. 
The CIA was formed specifically to deal with the UFO threat. Again, this is all coming directly from Behold a Pale Horse. If you dispute any of the facts, you're going to have to seance it up with Bill Cooper. He then runs down a series of executive orders and national security memos and things of the like that gave our various intelligence agencies varying levels of authority to investigate and deal with UFOs. And he mentions that these actions put a buffer between the president and the actions of the CIA, just in case he needed to disavow any of their actions that might accidentally come to light in the future. And that's all true. But whether it was done because of aliens or just because we knew the CIA was going to wreck shit on the world stage is the only real sticking point. But that same thing kind of comes up in The CIA and the Cult of Intelligence, which is a way more credible book and probably explains why it's so much harder to find. Eventually, all of these memos and meetings lead to the creation of the Majestic 12 group. He talks about a guy named James Forrestal, who will probably do a whole episode about at some point. He's a pretty interesting figure in the UFO story. According to Cooper's claim, Forrestal was an early alien abductee who also worked for the government closely with the MJ-12 group, but he rejected all the secrecy and wanted the public to know what was going on. And he eventually killed himself after being admitted to a mental hospital. Either that, or the CIA killed him to keep him from talking. If you've seen the documentary Wormwood, you know that at that point in history, that could totally go either direction. And probably today. Bill Cooper claims Forrestal's diaries were confiscated and kept hidden for years, and then finally published in a highly censored version. That is true. But he also claims the CIA gave the real diaries to a guy named Whitley Stryber, who published them as a fiction book called Majestic. And that's also true. At least the part where Whitley Stryber wrote a book called Majestic is true. If it's true that he was given the actual Forrestal diaries and told to make them fiction by the CIA, that is a pretty bulletproof way to make sure no one believes the actual truth should it ever surface. Just make it into a book or a movie first. And it's worth noting that after the initial hubbub, people didn't really start caring about the Roswell incident again until someone published a book about it in 1980. That someone being William Moore, the same guy who admitted to making up the Majestic 12 story with Richard Doty. That 1980 book was followed up by a really important Roswell book in 1991 called UFO Crash at Roswell that included interviews with more than 100 alleged witnesses. In between those two points in 1989 is when Whitley Stryber publishes that fiction book called Majestic that Bill Cooper and a lot of other people suspect is actually the real Forrestal Diaries. So the timing works out, but who knows, man? Whitley Stryber is both a fiction writer and the guy who wrote Communion, which he alleges is a nonfiction account of his own experiences being abducted by aliens. Also, fun side note, the exact date Majestic was published? September 11th, 1989. Because of course. So back to those crashes in Bill Cooper's theory. At one of them, an alien was found wandering around the desert and taken into custody. It was initially named EBE, Extraterrestrial Biological Entity. And dang it if this little rascal didn't have a tendency to lie when asked questions. How did they communicate with it? No clue. He doesn't say. I guess it just speaks all the languages. Whatever the case, EBE starts to get sick in 1951 and no one knew why or what to do 
because they didn't have any background on its medical history, obviously. And this little lion son of a bitch certainly isn't going to tell anyone anything other than that he processed food kind of the same way plants do. So doctors and botanists both worked to save EBE and they failed. He died June 2nd, 1952. Oh, also the movie E.T. is secretly a thinly veiled retelling of EBE's story. The government kept trying to save EBE right up to the last minute and even kept sending distress calls into the void after he died, hoping to gain favor with this clearly technologically superior race of beings that can't keep a fucking aircraft afloat over the notoriously friendly skies of New Mexico or figure out how to breathe oxygen. Sure. So around this time, Harry Truman set up the NSA, which is somehow only like number three or four on the list of truly shitty things Harry Truman did to the world while he was president. Sound off in the comments about what you think was first. Anyway, Cooper says the NSA maintains contact with our secret bases on the moon, and their main job is alien communications, but also reading your text messages, obviously. So this is where that unholy alliance of all the secret societies of the world happens. Truman was keeping Russia informed about the aliens in case they proved a threat to the human race with their inoperable spacecraft and absent lungs. They worked on a plan to defend the world if need be, and that's when the Bilderberg group formed like a Voltron that runs on trauma harvested from children. So cut to Eisenhower getting elected. It was an alleged memo from Truman to Eisenhower informing him of the existence of the Majestic 12 group that kicked off that entire theory. In case you missed it on the Bill Cooper bonus episode, that memo was found on a roll of film randomly mailed to a Hollywood filmmaker. That seems legit. So during Eisenhower's first year in office, there's 10 more crash discs, 26 more dead aliens, and four live aliens that are recovered. So now we're absolutely salivating at the thought of getting our hands on these rickety death traps that I'm starting to suspect were never flying in the first place. It seems like they just fell off whatever planet they're from and landed on Earth. I bet the lie EBE told the government was that his craft was really just a car, and I bet he wasn't lying. Also, Cooper says Majestic 12 was Eisenhower's idea, which I promise is just his attempt to deflect those claims from that 1989 UFO conference that the Majestic 12 story was made up. So shortly into Eisenhower's presidency, a bunch of large objects were detected traveling toward Earth, and uh-oh, turns out they were spaceships that showed up and just kind of hovered around the equator for a bit. And of course, the United States being the United States, we take this as a sign that they want to talk to us, because you know how close we are to the equator. So Eisenhower sets up a meeting, and we talk things out by way of binary code. He finally lets us in on that mystery. And they left us a hostage as a show of good faith that they'd return later to sign a formal treaty. If this sounds like the plot of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, that's because it is. They did return and sign that treaty, and that hostage became our first alien ambassador, His Omnipotent Highness Krill. Fuck yeah, Bill Cooper names our first alien ambassador in this theory. And yes, his name is His Omnipotent Highness Krill. They just call him Krill in the book for short. And it seems like Krill was fine with that also. Krill, very chill. And according to Cooper, four witnesses were allowed access to all this information and they were allowed to meet 
Krill. And this was done uh, sort of as a focus group to determine if the public should know about this. And based on the reaction of these four people, it was decided the public should definitely not know about this. But all of this was filmed, and all those films still exist today, with today meaning like 1991 when this book was published. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So this treaty we signed stipulated that we would stay out of the alien's way and let them abduct the occasional person or farm animal to experiment with, but no killing. Okay, they had to give the people back. In exchange, they would provide us with technology that would finally show us how to fall out of the sky and crash in the fucking desert. So we agreed to build some joint underground bases so they could probe buttholes with some privacy and we could practice crashing their craft into the ground. We did a lot of that at a place that came to be known as Area 51. Ever heard of it? Well, if you go there, you need a Q security clearance to get in. And I think you know what that means. It means the president doesn't have security clearance to visit the base. Again, tweet at Bill Cooper if any of this doesn't add up. So eventually, we had dozens of these bases all around the country, like 75 or so. And the money for all this is funneled through the White House, which is weird because it's a project of the secret government that our real government doesn't know about. But whatever the case, by 1955, it became obvious that the aliens were not abiding by the details of the treaty. Instead of abducting people, giving them the proverbial poke, and then returning them safely to bed like they promised, humans and animals alike were turning up dead and mutilated all over the damn place. Also, we learned the aliens were using humans and animals for a source of glandular secretions, enzymes, hormonal secretions, blood plasma, in genetic experiments. They explained they needed to do this to maintain their own survival. Apparently, aliens run on adrenochrome. The problem is, we'd realized by this point that the aliens had superior war technology, even if it couldn't fly that good. And so we just kind of had to go along with whatever they wanted to do until we could develop a weapon of some sort that might introduce some parity to the situation. And we didn't. We developed some weapons, one called Joshua, one called Excalibur, but apparently neither one helped. And also this was the point where the aliens informed us that, uh-oh, they actually created us and they've been manipulating us through religion and Satanism and witchcraft and magic and the occult. And also they used time travel to prove to us that the events depicted in the book of Revelation will come to pass for real if we don't do what they tell us to do. I would just like to pause and remind everyone that I am relaying another man's theory about our secret government to you because I feel like a crazy person just saying all of this. And this next part, which is that they also showed us a hologram that depicted the actual crucifixion of Christ. The government filmed it. The secret government or the real government? Yes. From there, he gets into how, in 1957, we found out the world was going to self-destruct with or without the help of God or aliens by the year 2000, 
if we didn't do something about all the pollution humans were creating on Earth. And a team of scientists came up with three options. One, blast a hole in the stratosphere and let all the pollution escape into space. Not sure why we never tried that one, but apparently we didn't. Second alternative involved building underground cities. And we obviously did that. There's one at the Denver airport. Third alternative was to exploit alien technology that struggles to stay afloat on Earth to build colonies on the moon, which for some reason he calls Adam in this book, and Mars, which he calls Eve in this book. And we did that too. Bill Cooper says he has the pictures. But that was going to take a while to put into action. Remember, this is late 1950s when this is all happening. So the elites enacted all those population control measures to kill people and stop them from having babies. And seems like that didn't work because global population increased by about 3 billion between when that decision was made and when this book was published. It's my own contribution. Bill Cooper doesn't bring it up. Anyway, to finance all this, the CIA and George H.W. Bush teamed up to start selling drugs, not to fund the Contras, mind you, but to fund population control efforts on behalf of the Bilderberg Group. He does mention that at some point JFK learned about all this and demanded the CIA stop selling drugs and working with aliens and that he was going to tell people about the existence of the aliens. So that's when the CIA had to kill Kennedy with a shellfish toxin pellet gun. Watch the driver and not Kennedy when you view the film. He says that in all caps in the book twice. He then delivers this line with all of the certainty and confidence in the entire world. Here goes. All of the witnesses who were close enough to the car to see William Greer shoot Kennedy were themselves all murdered within two years of the event. End quote. And it's like, come on, man. The woman sitting in the car next to JFK lived until 1994. It's his wife. You outlived her. She was alive when you wrote this silly book. He says he spent 16 years looking for a version of the Sapruder film that actually showed JFK getting shellfish toxin gunned by his limo driver, but wasn't able to until a guy named John Lear, who used to fly for the CIA, showed up and gave him one. And he said he got it from another CIA acquaintance. And man, nothing suspicious about that, Bill. Also, this is the point where somehow this chapter that is supposed to be giving us all the lowdown about our secret government overlords devolves into like five or six pages about a dispute over who owned the copyright to that version of the Sapruder film and thus had the right to sell it at their lectures on the UFO circuit. This information is vital to understanding why the world works the way it does, apparently. My favorite part of this extended rant section of his secret government theory is how, despite this chapter relaying a hypothesis based on his crystal clear memories of a treasure trove of documents he'd read 20 years earlier in the Navy, he somehow manages to conveniently forget things like the name of the producer from Inside Edition who lost their job after trying to get that version of the Sapruder film that Bill Cooper did or did not own, aired on the show. Nor can he remember the name of a newsletter that criticized his use of the video. All of this would have happened within the last five years or so prior to him writing that book that, again, is based on memories of documents he claims to have seen in the 70s. From there, he talks more about how the moon has bases and plants and seasons and cities, and people can walk around there with just an oxygen tank like you can in the ocean. And he says, once again, that he has pictures of all of this. 
Why he chose not to put those pictures in the book, anyone's guess. But at this point, he just starts piling on details about all the nefarious things the secret government is doing in the name of selling drugs to fund their dirty operations. And yeah, man, the CIA sells drugs. No dispute in that. But speaking of drugs, he says the CIA was using a combination of Prozac and hypnosis to cause school shootings so as to compel Americans to give up their guns, which, again, are the only thing protecting us from the New World Order. He predicts that the wave of crime that would happen over the course of the 90s would force the citizenry to demand that all guns be confiscated, and that once that happens, the CIA will round up a bunch of Illuminati slaves, put them in concentration camps, and then use them for slave labor to colonize the moon that he says has already been colonized because he has pictures. <sighs> and then the rest of the chapter is just him accusing various people who've criticized him over the years of being government agents who are part of the plot. He says that thing where someone came forward and said they made up the Majestic 12 story was actually a contingency plan launched by the government in the event someone like Cooper ever got too close to the truth about Majestic 12. Which, reminder, his version of the truth and everyone else's version of the truth is exactly the same, except his is that they found human bodies on the craft also. And then the real kicker comes right at the end of the chapter. Please recall, again, a whole lot of this theory that he presents in this chapter comes from his recollection of a bunch of documents that he claims he saw in his commanding officer's office while he was in the Navy in the early 70s. Well, at the end of this chapter, he takes a break from shit-talking fellow UFO investigators to praise some who he views as allies. And one of them is a journalist named Linda Moulton Howe, who especially impressed him by confiding that she'd seen the exact same documents he saw back when he was in the Navy. And how did she see him? She was shown them by Richard Doty, the guy from the Mirage Men documentary, the guy whose sole job with the government was to spread fake information to UFO investigator types to discredit them. So not exactly the best endorsement for the validity of Bill Cooper's theory, I guess. So there's only one more chapter I want to talk about in Behold a Pale Horse. I know I said chapter 12 is technically the end of the book in terms of things Bill Cooper actually wrote, and that is true. But there's a weird quirk about this book that I've just barely touched on so far. Earlier, I very briefly mentioned that the number of chapters in this book varies depending on what copy you have. Since initially reading it back in the mid-90s, I'd read some complaints online, especially in Amazon reviews and things of the like, about how more recent versions of Behold a Pale Horse are missing a chapter. And I'd always heard that it was a chapter about how the military was going to use drugs to stage school shootings. And no, as I just mentioned, that's still in the book, and it's not an entire chapter. And I didn't think much of it until a few months into the first wave of COVID lockdowns. At the apartment complex I was living in at the time, people would do that thing where if you had some shit you wanted to get rid of that wasn't worth selling, but not exactly junk, they'd put it in like the communal laundry room for whoever wanted to take it. And people did this a whole lot with books, especially. And so imagine my surprise when I go to do laundry one day and someone had left a for real print copy of Behold a Pale Horse for someone to get red-pilled by. When I saw it, my first thought was that the only responsible thing to do would be for me to take it, as opposed to letting some impressionable young buck 
have at it during COVID. But then my second thought was, oh, I wonder if that's the real one with all the chapters, the one that wasn't watered down by the man. So when I got home, I bought a Kindle copy of Behold a Pale Horse and compared the table of contents. And sure enough, mine had an extra chapter. And I started comparing the two table of contents. And that's when I noticed what that missing chapter is. It's an entire word-for-word reprinting of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. If you're unfamiliar, that is one of the most notoriously anti-Semitic texts of all time. It's all about how Jews control the entire world and are behind all of the bad things that happen all the time, always. It's often mentioned that auto-manufacturing legend Henry Ford was an early proponent of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. What's mentioned less is that a few short years after he embraced those teachings, he backed away from that opinion and apologized vehemently. Even Joseph Goebbels, one of the Naziest of all Nazis, rejected the protocols of the elders of Zion as a worthless forgery. But Bill Cooper says the text was just written that way to deceive you. It's not anti-Semitic. When you read it, you just have to replace the word Jews with Illuminati. And then it all makes sense. And here's the thing. No, no. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion is some anti-Semitic fiction nonsense. And including it in this book was stupid and highly suspicious, just like the book itself. And you know what? I think that brings us to the end of our exploration into the depths of Behold a Pale Horse. If you've read it and you disagree with my assessment of the book, by all means, tweet at me at Adam Todd Brown or sound off in the comments on Patreon or something. I'll tell you right now that I probably disagree with you, and I most likely won't even respond. But hey, sound off anyway. On our next free episode, we're diving into the complicated and tragic story of journalist Gary Webb, who, in a, I would argue, more credible manner, first told the world about actual connections between the CIA and cocaine trafficking, and got annihilated by his fellow mainstream media types for it. So be on the lookout for that. Until then, I don't have anything to plug. If you want to hear that bonus episode that I keep mentioning, subscribe on Patreon or Supercast or write in your Spotify app. And, uh, you know, I think that's it. Let's get out of here. Adam, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. <laughs>